Good afternoon. Welcome. If you're here today, I assume you're interested in migrations from monoliths to microservices. My name is Ronan Slasky. I'm a solutions architect at Amazon Web Services, working with global enterprise customers. I've had the privilege of working with Cisco Infinite Video Platform over the past year, helping them with their journey to AWS. Joining me today is Avi Fruchter, the CTO of Cisco IVP. Avi's going to be telling us how Cisco broke apart their monolith and how that transformation enabled them to achieve one of the fastest-paced migrations to AWS that I've witnessed in my tenure to date. Both Avi and I are going to be talking about some of the challenges that customers face when breaking apart their monolith. Avi's going to be talking about the challenges that Cisco faced breaking apart their monolithic application and some of the patterns that they used in order to overcome some of those challenges. I'm going to be talking about some of the challenges that customers face when teasing apart their monolithic databases and some of the patterns that can be used in order to overcome those issues. Let's start by talking about modern software development. So some people think that modern software development is all about technology. Well, it's not just about technology. It's about three things. It's about technology, it's about organization, and it's about processes. And the way we look at modern software development at Amazon is from the technology perspective, we start with microservices. And I'll tell you why. So in 2001, Amazon.com was a big monolithic application with big monolithic development teams. And we were facing a number of challenges. One of the big challenges that we were facing was around development and deployment velocity. So it was taking us time to get new functionality developed and deployed into production. And the reason for this was due to the size and the complexity of the application. And we knew that if we were going to continue to scale at the pace that we were scaling, we would need to do something different. And so we started to tease apart our monolithic application well before the term microservices was coined in our industry. We also knew that an architectural approach alone was not going to be sufficient if we still had large development teams and large operations teams shipping code between each other, we knew we would not achieve the development velocity that we needed. And so we started to tease apart our teams and build small, fully functional teams who had both operational knowledge and development knowledge. These teams would have end-to-end -end ownership of the entire product lifecycle. We call these teams service teams. Or in Amazon, we call them two pizza teams, teams that are sized no larger then two pizzas can feed, so between 8 to 12 people. These are small but hungry teams. We also knew that if these teams were going to run independently, were going to develop independently, were going to operate independently, we needed to provide them with the tools in order for them to achieve the velocity that we wanted. And so we started to develop continuous integration, continuous deployment, and continuous delivery tools, tools that after being hardened within Amazon for over 10 years, we released as services to our customers on AWS. I'm referring to code pipeline and code deploy. So to summarize, what was Amazon's challenge with respect to the monolith? Why did we break it apart? We needed development velocity. Now let's look at the results. The ball that you see here is a visual representation of Amazon.com with thousands of microservices and their interconnects between them. And in 2014, we released some information which talked to the development velocity that we achieved. So we've got thousands of service teams across Amazon building microservices, each operating and developing and deploying independently of each other, practicing continuous delivery, getting code all the way to production. And in 2014, we managed to deploy 50 million times. Think about that number. That's more than one deployment for every second, for every day of 2014, including nights, weekends, and holidays, God forbid. So what did microservices help Amazon achieve? It helped us achieve the development velocity that we so desired. In a monolithic world, we're used to building our applications with a single database. We can't continue to do that if we want to build microservices. 
if we want our teams to operate independently, if we want our teams to own their own service, if we want our teams to achieve the development velocity that microservices can, can offer, we need to tease apart our database. And that, in fact, is one of the key tenants for microservices architecture. The tenant of decentralized data management. And what we mean by this is that each microservice needs to own its own database or set of databases. And there are two reasons for this. So first of all, from the technology perspective, we want to choose the right tool for the job. We want to choose the right data store that will provide us the functionality that our service requires. So for instance, if we're building a search service, we would want to choose some sort of search engine, such as Elasticsearch or Solar. The second reason is each microservice needs, or each service team needs to own its technology, both the application and the database. And they need to be comfortable with supporting and maintaining it going forward. So, they, so we want to choose a database that each service team can support. Until now, I've spoken about the why and the what of teasing apart our monolith. Why do we want to tease it apart? We want to achieve development velocity. What do we want to do with our monolith? We want to tease apart the monolithic application into microservices and also tease apart our monolithic database. Now I want to talk about the how, focusing on how to tease apart our monolithic database. What challenges are we going to face when we tease apart our monolithic database? So I'm going to talk about three common scenarios that customers face when teasing apart their monolithic database. The first one is shared static data. What do I do when I have data that doesn't change often that I need to share across multiple services? The second one is shared immutable data, data that does changes frequently that multiple services need access to. And the third are transactions. Why are we going to talk about these three scenarios? Because in a monolithic database, these three scenarios are very common and basic functionality that you get out of a monolithic database. Let's dive into the first scenario. So in this case, in the shared static data, we've got three services that all need access to the same data. So in a monolithic world, it's very easy. They all have access to the same database, to the same table. They can just reach into the database and extract that information. When we tease apart our monolithic database, there are a number of approaches that we can take. So the first approach is to duplicate the table for each service. This is a simple but effective approach. You need to keep in mind that if you do need to update the static data, you need to update it in multiple locations. The second approach is to extract that data and embed it in your code, perhaps a property file of sorts. Now, while this does not address the consistency issue that I just raised, if you're using services like Code Deploy and Code Pipeline, it's very easy to deploy code to multiple services at the same time in production. And the third approach is to create a new service out of the static data. And this makes sense if the size of the data or the complexity of the logic around the data justifies it. So until now, we spoke about infrequently changing data. So let's talk about how we, we address frequently changing data. And we're going to talk about this in the context of a shipping service which needs access to a user's address. So in a monolithic world, the shipping service will just reach into the database, the user get access, get the user's table, and retrieve the address. When we tease apart our database, there are two approaches that we can take. The first approach is the synchronous lookup. So in this approach, each service that needs access to another service's data will reach into, will do a synchronous call and fetch the data. So in our case, the shipping service We'll make a call to the user service, which will query its database and return the information. And the advantage of this approach is that we don't have to worry about consistency. The shipping service is retrieving the data from a single source of truth. The, the trade-off, on the other hand, is that we need two calls in order to retrieve the data. So how do we improve on this pattern? How do we improve the performance of this pattern? So the next pattern is based off of this pattern. How do we improve performance of a latency-sensitive operation? We add a cache. And if we want to improve the availability of the data in the cache, the shipping service will subscribe to events from the user service 
And any time a user's address will get updated, the shipping service will then update its cache. And the advantage here is we've addressed our performance problem. The shipping service is retrieving the data directly from the cache. The trade-off, on the other hand, is because the shipping service is retrieving data from the cache, it's now eventually consistent. So here are two approaches. One is consistent, and the other is eventually consistent. How do we achieve consistency across our system? So here we talk about transactions. So transactions are a very useful thing. They say these things either all happen together or none of them happen at all. And in the context of a database, they allow me to update multiple tables, knowing that if one of the updates fails, my transaction will roll everything back and leave my data in a consistent state. Let's take a context of an ordering system where I, I, I place an order, I need to update my orders table, and then I need to debit my account table. What happens if that operation never gets to the account table? So in a monolithic database, where I have a single transaction boundary around both of those operations, I can rely on the transaction to roll everything back and leave my data in a consistent state. What happens when we tease apart our monolithic database? We now lose that single transaction boundary. And there are a number of approaches that we can take in order to implement transactions in a microservices world. So the first approach is if you don't need transactional consistency and eventual consistency is sufficient, then a queue and retry approach is very effective. So in this case, once we place the order, we put a message on a queue that the account service will then read from and apply, and apply the transaction to the account table. Now, this approach, as I mentioned, is eventually consistent. It's simple and robust, and it handles failures gracefully. This is a very common pattern. But notice, we didn't really implement a transaction. This is more of a synchronization of sorts. What happens if we really need transactions? So the following two approaches can be used in order to implement transactions in a distributed system. So two-phase commit is an atomic commit protocol which guarantees consistency in a distributed system. And it works as such. We have a transaction manager who's responsible for orchestrating the transaction across multiple components. And as its name suggests, it's a two-phased it's, it's approach. So the first phase is the voting phase. And in this phase, the transaction manager makes a proposal of the change that it wants to make to each of the components. Each of the components don't do anything just yet. They vote. They say either they can do it or they can't. And if they can do it, they hold on to the resources that they need until they hear back from the transaction manager. Once the transaction manager hears back from all of the components, we then go into the next phase, the commit phase. And in this phase, if the transaction manager gets a positive response from each of the components, it will then issue a commit telling each of the components to commit the transaction. If the transaction manager gets a negative response from just one of the components, it will issue an abort telling, the telling all the components to release the resources that they, that they held previously. And finally, since this is a distributed system. Each component needs to confirm to the transaction manager when they've completed their transaction. So the two-phase commit is a very common approach, one that's easy to implement. But there are a number of weaknesses. The big weakness is the two-phase commit locks resources between the phases. Locking resources means adding contention to your application, which is never a good thing. And if we combine that, with certain failure modes, such as the transaction manager failing or one of the services failing, that contention will be even longer. So the two-phase commit is pr primarily useful for short-lived transactions or scenarios where we're not concerned about network weather. But what are we going to do if we have long-lived transactions? Are we going to hold on to those resources for long-lived transactions? So the next pattern, the saga pattern, is a good, is a good approach for long-lived transactions. And the saga pattern is not new in the database literature. It was written about in a paper by Hector Garcia Molina and Kenneth Salem in 1987 from Princeton University. They were, they, at the time, they were talking about a scenario of a long-lived transaction in a single database. In more modern times, that pattern is used for a distributed system. So the, the, so the saga pattern, what it does is you take your transaction and you split it up into multiple serial steps. The saga is responsible 
for maintaining the consistency of the operation, either completing all of the transactions or rolling them back. And the way it rolls them back is it applies a compensating transaction. Let's break that down. So a saga is a long-lived transaction that can be written as a sequence of transactions. So we take our transaction T and we split it up into a series of transactions. So if we can split our transaction up, we have the start of a saga. Next, we create compensating transactions to undo the transaction in case we need to roll back. Now, it's important to note those compensating transactions don't necessarily undo the transaction. They semantically undo the transaction. So a perfect example of, of needing to, not every transaction can be undone. For instance, that nasty email that you sent to your boss that you want to recall, you can't undo that. Once you've sent it, it's gone. You can request to delete it, you can request an apology, but you can't undo it. So the Saga pattern has a guarantee. Its guarantee is either all of the transactions complete and our system is left in a, in a consistent state, or some of the transactions complete, some of them fail, and then we apply compensating transactions to, to re return the system to a business consistent state. The difference between two-phase commit and Saga is that two-phase commit locks its resources in order to guarantee its consistency, whereas the Saga works in units of work which can be undone by the compensating transactions. So Saga is useful for both short-lived and long-lived transactions. So before I hand off to Avi, there are three messages that I want you to take away with today. The first is if you have a monolithic application and you're suffering from development or lack of development velocity, consider microservices. They helped us. Second, when you go down that path, you will face a number of challenges. Consider the patterns that we've discussed today. They will help you get there faster. And finally, learn from others. Avi is going to tell us how Cisco broke apart their monolith, the challenges they faced, the patterns they used, and the results they achieved. Avi, stage is all yours. Thank you very much, Renan. It's been a pleasure. It's been a long journey, almost, I think, a year. And I really appreciate all the time spent together. And I want to talk to you about the story of Cisco and Cisco IVP. IVP is the solution that we give to uh, service providers, cable operators, in order to deliver premium IP content to their customers, linear channel change, video on demand, and then advanced features like recording, catch up, and restart. Short video. It's time to differentiate, to rapidly innovate, to utterly amaze. It's time to accelerate growth with personalized premium content. It's time to deliver broadcast quality video over IP everywhere. It's time to scale and reach all devices, improve efficiencies, and reduce cost. There's never been a better time to transform entertainment. We've been in this business for many years, from the days of digital, even pre, in the days from analog. And until recently, the service providers had on-premise their own data centers, what they call at the time data centers. They had a couple of monolith applications that were pretty much developing the, uh, delivering the functionality for the entire solution. And the delivery suffered from the waterfall. A release and upgrade was probably annually a year. Maybe at good times, certain customers got a half a year. And they really wanted to challenge us. They had to get to a much more rapid uh, release cycle every day, every two weeks. Major developments I'm talking about, not just bug fixes over here. I want to speak to you about a journey, how we took this entire thing and we, what we call rebirth it in the cloud. We're not just talking over here about a number of microservices, not a solution of five, ten. We're talking about hundreds of microservices together to build up this solution. Their deployment is at scale in multiple customers. We're talking about thousands of microservices. And one thing that we achieved is we were able to wrap this entire solution up and bring it up to AWS to the cloud, and I think it was called the record time of four months. And the reason that we were able to achieve this is because previously, historically, about a year and a half, two years beforehand, there were four major areas which we invested lots of development, a lot of effort, in order to achieve what we call rebirth in the cloud, a proper cloud architecture. 
Let me start with automation. And automation, two simple things. It's the ability from one command line to deploy the entire system. Regardless if you're a developer, if you're a customer, one, one line and everyone, all development teams have to adhere that that one line should be able to deploy them. But it's not only deploying them from scratch, it's also upgrading. Customers don't deploy every single day a new system. They're always in the pattern of upgrades. Not only the customers, but also the development teams. Once they deploy their system, every single day they're making little changes, minor changes, and they want to constantly be upgrading it. And it's how you bring automation to achieve this that's from one line. The benefits afterwards are very, very clear. First of all, in development, there's, we used to work with like one, two, three environments to support the entire development team. I'm talking about hundreds of developers. The ch times change today. Sometimes you've got a team that wants to spin up another environment for right now for the next couple of hours to run some type of test. Tomorrow they need another environment. You've got a new team onboarding. We've got probably over 50 and between 50 and 100 deployments constantly going on just in the engineering. It also gives very good velocity for onboarding new customers. It's not a matter of shipping over equipment a couple of months until they get the system up and running. We're talking over here about hours. And microservices, we get into very, very deep over here. I think it was a great uh, beginning of the presentation. And I want to speak a lot about uh, our microservices. And I want to break it up into two different uh, challenges that we had. One of our platform and one of the applications. Platform monoliths were entire systems that have been developed over years to give some type of commonality of functionality, for example, logging or deployment, and inside of them you had a number of applications. The applications might have been small, they might have been big, they might have been multiple within one monolith, but what I gave over here is some type of common framework that all of these systems needed. Now our solution is not built up of one of these. We're putting together many. And how do we get something common over here? It wasn't simple, okay? We had a sometimes scotch tape, at certain times bubble gum even, that's how we refer to in our engineering terms, in order to get all of these monoliths together, for example, just shipping logs to one area and writing much, uh, many different layers. And we thought, when we started this journey, we could just peel off this onion and we could just select out the applications and then we could have one new common denominator, a common platform for all of them. But it turns out when you start peeling the layers, we're not talking about onions, we're talking about something that are very intertwined and very connected into the applications itself, the libraries that they used, the way that they actually managed scale, the way they did logging, made it very, very hard just to remove all these layers over here and just take out the application. And most times, we just extracted the logic and we rewrote the application. And this was a big challenge, obviously, who wants to start writing new code, but it actually gave us a lot of velocity and we achieved it much faster. And what's success? Success is that we've got, by far, many less lines of code, the performance has improved dramatically, and the cost of operation as well. Uh, people say that I'm, I, I wanted to achieve 100% over here. Technically, it wasn't possible, so they only got up to 99.7. This was when we removed all of our platforms, and we actually had one new common platform through all of our services. People usually they'll understand a bit more of the function monoliths. So over here, we're talking about big machines that basically are capable of doing many different tasks and lots of different knobs and configurations for each customer. In our situation, one of our samples over here is the main catalog. It's, we have on one side the broadcast information. We've got as linear content. We've got as VOD, VOD uh, video on demand library. And we've got all the different entitlements that all the users have. And it went into one very, very big engine in order to support our application on the other side for the user experience, for them to be able to do aggregated search, view television, or purchase video on demand. Having this one monolith over here was very, very challenging. It made very, very hard in order to fix even bugs. In order to start getting into thousands or millions of lines of code, we understand why our deployments were happening only once a year. You change one thing, you have to test the entire system. They were very, very costly, and their scale was ferocious. Either you duplicated the entire monolith just because you needed one set of one, uh, one feature of that application in order to scale up. And again, over here, we rewrote and this time, it's many applications. Again, a dramatic, dramatic reduction over here in, in, in lines of code. We improved, again, performance, which wasn't a given. People assumed in the beginning that maybe these monoliths were designed in ways that they could perform a lot better. Reality showed differently. And as well as the bomb, we reduced our cost a lot. I would say we're about a third, but a lot more important than just seeing the graph over here is that when we have to scale, we're talking about scaling one core for one specific feature, for example, the search. 
So the monolith was scaling at these huge massive amounts, and in the microservices, we could scale them individually. The development teams, when we started approaching this, we had a couple of guidelines. One of the, we wanted teams to be 100% vertical independent from end-to-end. -end. A team should be able to not to be dependent on any other team in order to deliver functionality. We went down the domain-driven architecture where we told teams, you've got the basic information. We'll talk a little bit about where that came from. And what does it require in order for you to deliver the feature without being dependent upon any other teams? So an example over here, let's just imagine we're a broadcaster and we actually have our VOD library or we've got our linear channel change the whole ch channel lineup. So we've got a catalog of all of our VOD assets and there's lots of different functionality. One team is actually providing the functionality to navigate through your entire VOD store. So they're taking these files, they're parsing them, they're internalized, internally, they're building their databases, their data structures in order to optimally support their functionality. These are the patterns that Ronan spoke about earlier on. We'll see this duplication because the search also needs to ingest the same VOD library. And it's now two different copies, but each one ingested only the information that was relevant for that service. VOD, you need the synopsis, you need the price. Search, you probably need the actors. It's a different set of information that each one's ingesting. They don't ingest it, but the way that they process it internally is to optimally provide it to the clients at the best, in, the, in the best possible way. And over here, we face another challenge of duplication of code. Because in the monolith, there was one parser. If there was a bug in the parser, you fixed it once. What happens over here when each team is individually writing their own parsers? So we had a few patterns over this. There's not many where teams are very smart. Engineers are very, uh, they, they don't like actually just writing uh, code. They like innovating. So a couple of teams got together and said, listen, I wrote a parser. Let me deliver to you as a library. Let's create some common libraries over here. These are not data storages. It's not that they're calling back to these in order to retrieve data. They're just used as libraries for parsing. Different teams contribute to them, and they link together with them at build time. So each one is still just using the parsing capabilities and internally storing its own data structures. We replaced our entire system with zero downtime to our customers. And over here, we face another challenge. How do we build up the data in the new microservices where right now it's sitting within the monoliths. And I want to speak about three patterns. There were a few more. We did three major patterns. The first one is the simplest, the fork ingest. It basically means it's a file. It's been ingested until today into the monolith. We just have to fork in the beginning, supply it also to the microservice. The microservice gets populated with the data. This obviously is before our clients are actually even talking to the monolith. It gives the ability for the developers to start ensuring that it ingested the data properly. They could do load testing on these microservices in the live production even before they started shifting over the clients. But certain times, the monoliths actually do manipulations or they actually have some type of state inside. So the recache allowed us, when there were monoliths that actually had APIs in order to, like, for example, dump the entire database. So when we were able to access the monolith from the new microservice, we created some interface. We dumped all the data into our new microservice in order to populate it. And the most challenging ones when there's actually state. You can imagine a user's doing booking and recordings constantly in the system, so the state's stored over here. And over here, we have to create throwaway code just to always synchronize the monolith and the microservice. And this goes on for a while, because as we're breaking apart this monolith, some actions are being driven through the microservice and has to update the monolith, and some actions are going still through the monolith and has to update the microservice. But we succeeded to the, uh, replace our entire system in flight. I want to speak about a couple of common uh, frameworks that we get out of the cloud. People always think the cloud is compute. We know today it's a, lo a lot be beyond compute and just storage. It's what are the services that the cloud could give you to enable you actually to develop applications. I selected a list of nine over here. I'm sure many of these talk to many people in the room over here. You could clearly identify service registry in a microservice world where you've got hundreds coming up and going down and the IP is constantly changing. It's an obvious. Object storage was not so clear, although we did discover that there are certain clouds that don't provide your services object storage. But we needed this over here to share data between different services. And it's not only a matter of getting all these platform services. It's actually how many times they actually work together. For example, our smart routing. This is a pattern that we use on a daily basis for upgrading our system. It basically, when we, do, when we deploy a new version of a new microservice, it's sitting side by side. And we have the ability to take individual users, which we tag them, and regardless of where in the entire chain this microservice is sitting, 
to gear them to use to this user to only use that one version, version 1.1, while the entire community on top is always pointing to the version 1. This is not just one common service provided by the cloud. It's actually connecting together our deployment tools, together with our service registry, and also talking to our load balancers. Each time a new microservice is being deployed, update the service registry, configure the load balancers, associate which users should be targeted right now for this instance of the microservice, until eventually, as we gradually steer more and more population over to the service, until everyone's steered over, and then stop routing traffic to the old ones. And our pipeline. Our pipeline runs 24-7. Our pipeline at the system level treats every change to every component as a new version, upgrades using the same processes that we do in live, and testing it. And we have thousands over the past year of runs of new deployments. And there's many times that it also always fails. And we believe actually in the philosophy, better fail than, de than, than develop very, very slowly. So we do see a pattern, we do see it happening over here. Teams learn from there and they improve. Let's speak a little bit about the pattern and how things connect to stuff that we start off in the beginning. Every new change to every service is delivered into a queue. And that queue, they're processed one at a time in our main pipeline. So you could imagine over here, service three and service two got upgraded. And right now the manifest basically includes these two together. But it was upgraded. In automation, it was very important for us always to be able to deploy a new system. And we discovered over time that some services, when they give you a new version, they didn't support or there was some bug in order to deploy the system from scratch. And therefore, we developed another queue. We don't always run it because it would take much longer for the pipeline to be executed. We want a very quick return for the developers, so we run it once a day. And what happens at the end of the day is we take the final version that was completed the night before and we do a big upgrade. We basically upgrade all the services that pass the pipeline, and on this, we do actually a clean deploy. So we also tested a major upgrade. It could have been 10, it could have been sometimes in some cases even 20 microservices together. This is what's gonna happen eventually in the field. But we also made sure that we could do a clean deploy. So if something was broken, we could quickly open up bugs to the development teams and fix stuff that was developed probably within the past 24 hours. And then Sunday comes along, and again, the queue gets filled up. And obviously, one service didn't pass the queue. It gets rejected. It's not in the manifest. And therefore, on Monday, the release and the, uh, the update just skips over service three, and the development team is going to fix their bugs. We have learned so much over the, this past period of the, the world is developing so rapidly. We're always thinking of where we can improve. For example, our pipeline is very serial. We want to achieve the point where the individual development team could deliver directly to the customer, to the end customer, to the end user, without a dependency on a different team. And we're constantly evolving and debating, and we're building technologies in order to enable this. The cloud is way beyond, like I said earlier on, just the basic services and the compute. We're always evaluating new services. If it's serverless architecture, if it's about deployment tools, code, code pipeline, code deploy, and at these levels, we already have applications, integrations with Alexa. And as developers, we're always evaluating what could we leverage from the cloud versus what until today we're, we de we're developing ourselves for the needs of our application. And we're always in this balance over here by retiring some of our services and using what the, service, what the cloud is actually providing. The example of the code pipeline, we've got a team which replaced all of our development tools in order to get an end-to-end -end pipeline running using the Amazon tools. It's, it's one less thing for us to have to support. Why do we have to support our own tools over here when we can actually leverage it from Amazon? So they developed an entire pipeline from when they commit into the Git, it gets deployed into the environment for the testing, it gets upgraded to the next environment, then eventually gets deployed and shipped for all the different production environments for all the customers. And my takeaway is that first of all, it's investment. This doesn't happen for free. It's a huge investment. I can't tell you if it's 20%, if it's 30%, every organization and each one of their own challenges, but it's a big investment. And our investment was about breaking this apart, taking these big monoliths over here and breaking them into little pieces. Constantly leveraging and understanding how the cloud is evolving and new services are coming out of the cloud. And that doesn't end. It's an ongoing basis every single day. What was newly announced over here? Does it fit into our organization? Does it fit into our solution over here? Will we benefit from it? And automation. 
Code is, code is code, deployment is code today, and configuration, every single thing has to be automated. And if you actually have the right focus on these three things, you're gonna increase your customer satisfaction. We measure customer satisfaction actually by the NPS score that their customers give them, and we monitor this over here. We improved our costs. We're much cheaper today to run. We reduced our costs dramatically. And ultimately, our developers are much happier as well because they're focused a lot more on the innovation parts and not just on developing and maintaining traditional legacy systems. Thank you very much. If you have any questions, feel free. Anyone has any There's questions? There's two microphones over the here. Microphone over here. Okay, well, we're around if anybody wants to ask us questions privately. What? So the question was if Cisco.com runs on monoliths. I'm speaking over here specifically about the IVP. It's what we give, it's not the Cisco.com website. That's a totally different organization. I'm talking about over here, the, the, the service that we developed for the service providers to deliver video. Totally different application. I don't know the answer for Cisco.com. I, I understand that. The reason I'm asking is on, when you work on web applications, we have content servers and commerce servers. Today, you need those engines. Those engines are monolithic. So my question was, how do you break down those engines Again, I didn't understand the question. Cisco.com was not the solution that we spoke about over here. Do we have web engines? We do have web engines within our solution as well. We do have, some of our applications are developed over web technology. Many of the communication between our clients and the head ends over web technology. And the web engine could be an Apache server, it could be something very, very small. I, I, again, I, For example, when I say it's a content server, you might be the manager or an article to the CSR. SharePoint, so you need a content server engine. So probably, yeah, you are. Um, it might be there, yeah. Thank you. Uh, so one of the challenges that we have uh, when um, breaking down monolith into microservices is is the code refactoring, uh, and that as well as like um, we have this whole, as you mentioned in the slide, there is whole big database. So how do you break into like independent databases and like you know how do you sort of your own services? So do you have any good resources on how we can tackle uh, the code refactoring stuff as well as like creating this new data model? What we did is we, so the question over here is actually how we broke up our big monoliths into the microservices. Yeah, more specifically the code and the database. Yes, so what, again, what we have in is teams that took a feature and they took ownership of this feature over here. For example, at the VOD, the VOD. So there's a monolith that Tote was supporting it to the clients. The team understood from end to end where does that information come from? Does it come from an external file? Does it come from within the monolith's database? They de developed a new microservice and they started ingesting from the data. Either it's come from the, th from the external source or from within the monolith itself. They tested it. And then they started shifting the APIs coming from the clients to little by little start using the microservice. The monolith still remained because the monolith has come to support many, many functional, func functional calls. We moved over little by little, I would say, until we got to bat the mass, probably about 60% of the APIs off. And then eventually we came, the, that was the really hard, the, the last mile was the hardest part. Because the last mile is like, you know, it's static data, all this stuff, it's stuff that's really intertwined together. Right. And over there we had to do a very big change. And basically we got everything prepared, we had all the services running on their own. And still a lot of the calls are still calling the monolith, we'll probably say about 40% of the calls. Mm -hmm. Until like the static data, we had a new, all the new services have to call this new static data service over here. And we worked over there, we brought all the teams together. So all the teams of these individual, individual microservices, we brought them together, what we call the REITs, one roof integration. And they basically, it took them probably, in certain cases, three weeks, in certain cases, it might even take them two months in order to get all the functionality off, but we still still have the monoliths in the system. As, unless they were actually being noisy, meaning different monoliths act differently. Sometimes it's monoliths that you have to shut down parts of them. That was really in the, in the, in the details. And we had to do it until eventually it just became registered in the, in the service registry, but not active at all. We left it another cycle or two, and then we started shutting down all those machines. 
So uh, in, the, in the beginning, it starts very quickly. You get a few things that you could pull away very, very quickly, but then you get to the core, and that, then you need everything when working together. There's, there's no magic over there. And it's different. Different systems were different. It really depend on end-to-end. -end. So based on your experience, uh, which, how do you think uh, one can uh, approach this whole problem of breaking monolith into microservices? Do we start at the, uh, the data model first, or start when you're... You start by, divide, by breaking up your organization. That's the first and you define a team and you say, you know what, you're responsible? You're responsible for, de for de delivering recommendations from A to Z. Go learn the domain, go learn where the pizzas are today, and break it apart into something you're going to maintain yourself. And the teams always were, they, they were accountable from end to end from that feature. So as long as they didn't pull everything away, they were waiting for other teams to develop and fix bugs that they were required to. So it actually was a big incentive for them. And it gave them the velocity as well. So I would say I would start from the organization. So the, the, the team that is responsible for this microservice uh, builds the new microservice as well as maintains that functionality from the monolith? Yes. Because they have the understanding of the they, they, what, the we, we, we divide up the teams according to functionality. Exactly. Okay. And they had their responsibility. Now, sometimes they didn't even understand the monolith. Right. They had issues. They had to turn to a different team until eventually they were able to break it apart. But yes. We first of all define the functionality, and, we, and it was from end to end. Okay. Even our clients, the teams over there even developed into the clients itself. So this whole process, what was your, what was your biggest challenge? Like, what was the biggest challenge? Yeah. Like, what was like, the most, where you had to spend a lot of mental cycles? The common architecture, what are your common platform services that everyone has to work with? You know, I can't choose a nice logging just because I enjoy working with it, and you're going to choose a different logging at the end, we're going to have two different areas over here. The messaging, how do I message, how do I deploy, what are my deployments, how do I configure the system? How do the alerts come out of the system? Someone has to operate this. Decide on these, th these, these three things in the beginning, and, and there's always going to be opinions, and there's going to be religions. But as an organization, you have to understand that at some point, if you want to succeed, these things have to give. The second part is now to give the teams the guidelines. This is what you have to be working with. And they change over time. Our deployment probably changed three or four times over the past uh, two years. Of course, we learned today so so many times over of what worked for us, what didn't work for us, and how to communicate. If we want to make another change tomorrow in the deployment pattern, we already know how to communicate this out. If you have a, a problem in the deployment, we gate you. You don't even enter the pipeline. So that's one other thing I would say is when you do have these guidelines, develop them into code as gates. So if you, uh, containers, you have to give sizes. Otherwise, you can just use endless resources. It's a requirement. It's important for you. Make sure it's mandated, and when you actually get a new container release, if those parameters don't appear, just reject the component immediately. The sooner you can identify that there's an issue, the sooner the team will be reactive, and the sooner the team will actually learn. And we're talking about you know, thousands of developers. Yeah. Okay. With the smart router, how did you have it know when it's like deploying a version 1.1 to have that feature go there if that feature wasn't in the monolith? Like, did you have a different URL, a URI in the route? I think you said no. you had all version ones talking to each other, and then as you rolled, you know, the version we, we, we have a community. So you could be community test, and you could be community alpha, and I could be community live. Well, all the rest of be over here community live. And when a new service comes in, regardless of where it is entire chain, it registers as a new service. And then we say, you know what, we want to start routing community test. We used over there headers, and we use, uh, we use HAProxy. And we configure the system at deployment time already, within console, the awareness that this new version exists. And then afterwards, basically, when requests come in from any one of us, we tag on that header of what community is part of. So you're using tags in your service engine for that? Or we're not, no, no, no. We're, we're using tags in the headers. We're configuring our HA proxies using console template. So every HA proxy has a console template. When we change something in the console, automatically all the HA proxies basically build up the new routing tables. And therefore, we start saying, OK, it's time. Let's start routing over our test community. So if we have some service sitting, I don't know, three levels down in the chain, we're still going to be all reaching the same gateway, because that didn't change. And the header of that load balancer basically says, route everyone to the same gateways, or to the pool of gateways. But when eventually we reach the, the, the HA proxy for that individual service, it now is aware that it's two versions. And it knows that right now only route test to the new pool of uh, the new, uh, what's it called, the, the group of the new version. And then when we're confident and we see it's working very, very well, then we route over our alpha users. And what's the source of truth for the versions? Where is that information stored in the stack? When you say this, they're all reading from the same database. Okay. Um, but as far some as of them ingest them. Some when it, the app starts up, it, it 
registers its version somewhere. Yeah, it's in console. In console. Every single time a new service comes up, it registers in console. I'm a new, I'm the, I'm the service, the service group, and this is my version over here. Uh, I wouldn't say they're not always reading from the same database. When there is common shared data, then yes, they're all reading from the same one. But a lot of services come up and they just rebuild our cache. And we have this distinction between which are the databases that we actually have state and persistency, and which are the services that are using databases, but they're using the database just because it's an efficient way to store their data models. They want to be able to query it. So they're using a database, but all that data could be re-ingested from scratch. And then when a new service comes up, it basically creates itself a new table, so it doesn't even affect the other one, rebuilds all the information. When it's available, it starts serving the communities, little by little out. When we get to the live community, then we do Canary. Meaning until, so we could do target. We could take an individual user, and we could target to exactly which version of which service to use. Uh, Netflix have their uh, client side load balancing. We are using it uh, on the HA proxy we developed a mechanism. And, uh, and when we get to the live, then the customer starts saying, OK, I want 10%. I want to start throttling it over here. So we, 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 work, we work in both modes in the HA proxy. No, we have multi-region deployments. Depends on the customers. The difficulties are not in the console. The difficulties are in the databases, the servers that basically have to be master or slave. And then you configure the console from one to return the URL from the other data center so that when a service is running in one data center wants to talk, it's not actually talking to, it's the slave, so it's actually getting back the URL for the other data center going back and forth. Uh, that's a lot of times why we try to get rid of a lot of those databases and move to databases which are more, uh, more user-friendly in a multi-region. Yeah, a lot of intricacies uh, setting up APCs in different regions and adding a bunch of private instances in those and uh, where the services are running. No, we, ha we, have, uh, we, ha we have two totally different uh, regions, uh, not, only, not only in AWS, also in other clouds, uh, in an OpenStack environment. Uh, in AW, it was even, even more challenging, non AWS environment, because it's totally different networks even. We had a bridge of networks, so it was a lot more complicated, but we got them working. We have three in each one, the, the cluster of three, and between them they're synchronizing. I'm not aware of, I mean, we've got many, many challenges, a lot of you know, uh, tweaks that we did along the way, but I'm not aware of it's functional. Uh, console's really nice because you can actually replicate the information from one data structure uh, break out one service, you then have to sometimes like, oh, we need to break out this other service while we really, or did you just say your team's going to focus on that service and you'll use the monolith until they break out something? We didn't tell a team which service they have to focus on. We told a team which functionality. Right. And we told teams don't develop too much functionality into your new services that you're, that you're writing. So teams started deciding for themselves what type of services they needed. We really gave them a lot of independency. We gave certain guidelines, like we, didn't, we wanted to avoid as much as we can calls from one, um, uh, from one microservice to a different one. We wanted more of the communication to be coming like from the back end, duplicate the data. Um, because over the time, you always realize that, I'm just going to use your information, it already exists. And then we come to the live system and you realize, wait a second, it's, you threw out the data after a day and I need it to be persistent for two days. Oh, yeah, because you have a different use case. Why do you do that? So teams learn uh, relatively quickly that they should really de develop their, as much as they can to be isolated and independent on themselves. And I would say that we more broke up the teams and their functionality, and then they learned on their own what their uh, microservices are. Because the microservices don't match up exactly to the monolith. They gave 100% functionality. They gave for, the, for, our, for our solution today. But it's not like it can map up. You know, two monoliths together happened to be three different, uh, I mean, one monolith became 15 different microservices, but they weren't only for that one monolith. They were for like two other ones together. Because the team focused right now, I'm doing the recommendations. I'm right now doing the, the entire VOD library. So I can't say that we have a specific one. But we always had on top of the architecture and certain guidelines that we had to uh, adhere to. We're a good way down this project. I mean, we, we have teams, but they're in charge of multiple microservices. So it's kind of a little bit different. But we seem to where like, someone will start one feature and then say, well, I, I use this in the monolith. So really, we need to have another team bring this service out of the monolith. And so it's like they're kind of shifting some of that. Situation. So by us, the team would basically develop another service on their own. Yeah. And we have a very big uh, co open, open code model. So if you ever do need something from a different team, you just go into their code and you edit it. No, there's no code uh, ownership. There's just a, it's a philosophy that we built into our organization. There's more uh, the, the moderators. How do you guys automate like, code review and that kind of stuff? We have tools sometimes that use it. But eventually, there is the moderator, which is usually the team 
that stands behind the service that's going to support also in the field. And they basically do a code review as well. They built into a lot of automation tools. Certain, certain components use actually the environments in order to test the full system end to end for every single pull request that comes in. And right away, you get feedback if your pull request broke something or not. Uh, some of them have, uh, they even review the test and the test coverage. And if you delivered a feature that reduced below like 80%, they won't accept your feature because they want you also to contribute additional tests to cover it. So teams built around basically their, depending on how many other teams worked and stepped into their own monolith to contribute code, they built up their own type of mechanisms. I have a non-technical question. Were you even close in trying to predict your ROI in order to justify the business case to make the investment? It must have been amazingly complicated. I think it was simpler than we thought it was, but to convince the organization, was kind of like you had to have the right people to support you. Because a lot of people, why are you doing this? These things already exist today. It's not going to give us any new feature. And you're sitting behind there and you're explaining to them, you know what our velocity for development is today? You know, we're just not going to be relevant in two years if this is what happens over here. We can't, we can't work in this scanning. You know, you, know you, you know the amount of time it is for a customer to take new information and ingest to the system is? We'll solve that all for you. Um, did the entire organization buy into it? No, but the engineering did. We did as I code that. The bomb was easy. For example, I remember I had to create these matrices to convince people by saying, you know, we want to reduce the cost to operate by 30%. We didn't say we're to increase your velocity of development. That came as like a given. Even though I knew the ROI was better than development velocity than the but it was challenging, and uh, I mean, uh, my manager sitting over here in the room, who was a very, very believer behind this, and he basically made it happen. And then, but, yeah, I mean, a lot more exacts kind of understand that. But, so, yeah, I don't think it's a very hard sell. Like, these trends are like, well, I'm an executive, and it, it, it's a hard sell okay, fine. to the technology so, so. Okay, leads, it's a hard sell to the CFO and to the CEO sometimes, right? In terms of, because it's hard to, you know, to Go convince your product team yeah. that the next feature that will bring them the best benefit is to do six months of going into silence mode. And we didn't. I said, you know, that big bang was certain services came very early on. But that big bang, we had to get someone, you know, like at some point we just said, you know what, we need right now 15 engineers for the next three months, don't give them any task. And at the end, obviously, at the end, everyone comes in and says, thank you. It's like, it's amazing. But uh, a lot of t times, thank you, thank you very much. The challenge is actually to get that buy-in, to, to get that investment. And sometimes, I, I would say we're very creative. Sometimes a bit on the side over here, a bit on the side over here. So when they start seeing the customer, here an example, when they provided a new set of ingest to the system, they wanted to update it three times a day. That was a requirement. We sold the product that three times a day you can make changes. Because you know, you watch television at home, the schedule changes. They have a requirement three times a day. It took 24 hours to process a new file. So the customer puts in the file, and he's sitting down over there. You don't even meet requirements. And once you get a little piece out, you say, by the way, the channel change is updated right now in microseconds. You gave a new, you gave a new channel lineup over here, immediately he's going to see that feature. And what's the magic? Oh, wait a second, what else do you want it for? Oh, so you want also need a TV guide to see it. Okay, that will be our next feature. How do we develop the next feature? We actually break out to another monolith. Okay, we can continue outside.